You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 27th of June 2021 on Monocle 24. And a very good morning to you. We are live in London and Zurich and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme, Monocle's editorial director is in the Swiss Alps for us. We'll be finding out about what Tyler Brule has been doing this last week. Also ahead, my panellists, Ben Zog, Simon Brook and Terry Stiasny will be sifting through the news. What have you seen, Terry? Good to see you. Good morning. Uh, Well, here in London, all the newspapers are obsessed with the circumstances surrounding the resignation of the British Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, uh, who has been having an affair while running the country's COVID response. The Sunday Times headline here calls him the Puritan in chief who became the ex-minister for hypocrisy. Thank you very much indeed, Terry. We'll also head to Tokyo for the latest from our bureau chief, Fiona Wilson, there. So it's the 27th of June 2021, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. So, a quick summary of the news. A fifth body has been found after the collapse of an apartment block in Florida. Hopes are fading for the 159 people still unaccounted for. Meanwhile, a report into the safety of the building highlighted a major error in its original design. A reward of $800,000 has been offered following an attack on the Colombian president. Ivan Duque was nearing Cucuta Airport near to the border with Venezuela in a helicopter when his aircraft was hit by gunfire on Friday. No one on board was injured. And two more Catholic churches in indigenous communities in western Canada have burned down. The authorities are treating the fires as suspicious. They both began within an hour of each other at St Anne's Church and the Chapaca Church in British Columbia. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. And we begin today's programme high up in the Swiss Alps, where we can hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule, in Gestad for us. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, Emma. Um, how are the cowbells doing? Cowbells um, are, are pretty sedate. I'm not sure. Maybe the cows are, are too high up. As, as you know, this part of the Berner Oberland, it's not that high, but uh, I think somehow, uh, yeah, the, the Simmental uh, beef, they've um, yeah probably made it to about uh, 1,200 metres or something. I'm, I'm not hearing any clanging at this time of the morning. That's, that's, that's actually rather, rather, rather saddening because there's nothing better than waking up in Switzerland than that. <laughs> Um, how's life up uh, up in the Alps with you? What what are you there for? Well, we're here for uh, a, a festival, a new festival, which is uh, just launched called WOW, W-O-W, World of Words. Uh, and this is uh, something which has been brought together by various people in the community here, um, also quite a crowd from Geneva. And to really kick off something which is new to the cultural uh, schedule here, as you know, of course, so many of the Alpine resorts are our worlds of classic cars and, uh, of course, lots of sporting events, uh, maybe the, the odd turn of music. And, and you see quite a competition right now, Emma, between, um, I think, resorts all over the place as they look to sort of rethink their summer schedules, uh, maybe as people also flee from the Mediterranean, also happen to, of course, you know, rethink, uh, of course, Alpine regions without snow. So uh, culture, uh, certainly cultural events, uh, are kind of jockeying for position, um, really sort of, you know, from Austria across to Switzerland to France, 
uh, enter Italy. The focus is really on the word, the world of words, isn't it? And it and it's this idea of the telling everybody that whatever has happened in the last year, if one thing has come to the fore, is that literature and books and storytelling is is such an important part of our world. Absolutely. And uh, and last night, uh, one of the anchor. Uh, guest was Oliver Stone. I was interviewing him on stage. Uh, Mr. Stone is going to be heading to the Cannes Film Festival uh, to launch a new documentary which comes after almost 30 years off the back of the film uh, JFK, bringing together uh, new evidence uh, and also a new narrative uh, really off the back of what, of course, is an extraordinary story. And, of course, Mr. Stone doesn't mind sort of trading in um, the odd bit of conspiracy theories from time to time. Um, and it was, uh, it was quite a lively evening we had with him. Um, and then just an, an interesting array of other authors, illustrators, um, also brought to the, the festival as well. One thing that, um, that I read on, on when I was doing a little bit of research into this is that everything is going to be held in English, which has is, is been described as the, the modern-day de facto lingua franca. Is it still the case? Because I think there was a couple of weeks ago I was, I was involved in something where everybody insisted on doing everything in French for the first 10 minutes. And I was wondering, is there a little bit of a cultural jostling nowadays between languages or are we still sticking to, 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 to English? Yeah, I, I think that you're actually seeing a bit of a, of a reinstatement of languages. We don't have to re, you know, rewind a few weeks ago uh, when we had uh, Eurovision. And I think we were all a bit surprised. We've seen... You know, of course, people can laugh about Eurovision, Emma, but it's, it's still, you know, this, this collection of, uh, of great voices, or some not so great as well, <laughs> coming together for um, this remarkable, um, you know, music sing-along. And, of course, the three winning songs, um, none of them were in English. And, and I think that is a bit of a marker for what you're saying. Right. Let's move on to an important uh, an important event in the Monocle calendar is, is our annual quality of life survey. The numbers are in. There's been a bit of a tweak this year, hasn't there? Could you sort of uh, explain how you've had to recalibrate this year to, to factor in the last 12 to 18 months' worth of events? Yes. Yeah, so of course, like last year, we took a, a pause. We didn't do the... We, there was a quality of life issue, as our readers will know, but uh, we didn't do the, the ranking um, and this year we had to do two things. You know, one was, of course, and there was a, listen, there was a big debate um, internally, should we do it uh, or, or should we not? But we thought that um, after, of course, a, you know, a, a year's pause, um, it was time to, to evaluate. So we did two things. One was we wanted to look at, at, at cities. Um, and, and, of course, you know, many will know that there are, there are probably over 30, 35 metrics that we look at, of course, from public safety and health and infrastructure. Um, but we also wanted to look at, you know, that, that notion of, of, of the liberal and, and what do maybe a more liberal hand mean for those cities, so in terms of, of being more open societies. And then the other thing that we did, Emma, was also a bit of a look ahead as well. Uh, we wanted to be able to say, okay, what, what is happening? What is on the horizon when we look at, at a Tokyo or when we... Uh, judge a Kyoto or, or a Vancouver. So, you know, again, as we said, we've always got our classic measures. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, um, many listeners and, and readers will know, uh, we've been very focused on, on you know, the topic of, of how stringent measures are. And um, so this is, I think we see this as a snapshot. We certainly know that this is not a situation which is over for countries um, or, or for urban areas. Um, but we think, it's, um, we think it was a more nuanced way of looking at things. And there is a familiar list at the top, isn't there? There is a familiar list um, at the top, and uh, and you know, even though there was a bit of a juggling around, we saw the uh, we saw a city like Los Angeles um, enter for for the first time. 
And again, that has a lot to do with, of course, you know, big things on the horizon. You know, not we don't have to just focus on um, on the likes of the Olympics either. So that was that was one thing that uh, that played in favor. Um, but yes, uh, Copenhagen uh, is is the winner, uh, listeners. Uh, Zurich uh, came not far um, behind, and then of course you have you know you have the collection of cities that you like, Edna, like of course you know, Vienna does uh, does uh, you know, in a very good turn, um, as well as, as as many other cities in in Middle Europe and also the, the Nordic region do as well. It is. I, I really enjoyed the fact that Copenhagen has come to, uh, is at the top again, is at the top this year, for the fact that, um, just talking about it before we want, went we went on air, Copenhagen doesn't sort of um, display its jewels immediately, like, let's say, a city like Vienna, but just spend a little bit of time underneath underneath the surface and, and you, you discover that the way that people do things actually makes it a really lovely place to be. And there is that also that sense of uh, trust in the local authorities, which is what has happened, uh, which is what a lot of people have had to put their, tr- their trust in the local authorities for the last year. It's a, it's a, it's that of sort of the subtleties and the and the and the like the deep down quality of life, which really makes a difference in a city, isn't it? Yeah, and that's something that you certainly see. I was in Copenhagen a few weeks ago. Of course, the the results were were pretty much in, but there was just this this incredible rhythm that the city had, and it was probably in its you know third week of, of really feeling properly open and even over the past few weeks we've seen that not just the Copenhagen government the Danish government has taken you know quite quite an aggressive stance of saying let's let's open up our city let's open up our society let's of course you know let's allow people to use their their own faculties and self-responsibility to to move forward and you really you just felt it on the street the bicycles people swimming in the harbor um, and and a slight sort of also takeover of the streets you know, fantastic greenery, um, retail sort of thrown open. There is an overhaul of a train station. There are two new tram lines. Um, maybe the, an airport has a new terminal. They really want to, of course, measure those very, very simple things, which makes it a pleasure. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. That was our editorial Thanks. director, Tyler Roulet, on the line from Gestad in Switzerland, from Wow Gestad. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. The time is 10 past nine here in London, and it is 10 past 10 in Zurich. So let's introduce today's panellists. I'm joined, I'm delighted to say, in the studio in London by the communications consultant, Simon Brook, and the political expert and author, Terry Stiasny. And let's not forget what's happening in Zurich from uh, our headquarters in Zurich at Dufourstrasse 90. Uh, Monocle's security correspondent, Benno Zog, flying the flag, flying solo this morning in the Zurich studio. Good morning, Benno. How goes it where you are? It is quite quiet here. Good morning, Quinta Morga, Emma, but it's still nice to talk to you over in London. It's absolutely wonderful, and it's good to have you uh, all with us today. Um, we've just heard Tyler talking about the, you know, what makes a decent city to... to, to uh, to the, the factors that are being considered now when it comes to quality of life in our survey this year. Um, ben, I think I might begin with you, if, if that's all right. And The fact that we've, we've tweaked things to make sure that we look at not only how we've coped with the pandemic, but also how we're looking ahead. Um, in your view, I mean, Zurich's ranking up very, very highly. It's number two. Um, do you think that's a fair, fair assessment? <laughs> I'm I'm a bit biased naturally being from Zurich originally and maybe so is Tyler who is based here and but there's certainly reasons to put Zurich high up on the list and it's not just a monocle survey it's also another quality of life service that Zurich f- ranks really well and I think the pandemic has been a factor in that I think the city has coped fairly well um both in the in the health sector as such when n- numbers were 
even though high at times, manageable overall. But also the cities have done their best to make life enjoyable, to be flexible about regulation during that time, to allow cafes to expand onto the pavement. Just a minor detail that Monocle Cafe itself here enjoyed. And I think that was really crucial. But now looking into the future, there's actually very big plans to make the city greener, to have fewer cars out there, to maybe re-ease re or relax regulation a little bit. And I think that's, that's really key. And I think Monocle really picked up on that. There's one thing as well that every time we talk to you, that someone has been for a dip in the Zurich, <laughs> say. There's always a prospect of a body. There's an excellent picnic around the corner. There is that sense that people do look around them and just go, right, what can we literally dive into? Yes, that is actually very true. And not just Monocle staff here enjoys that. It is really a thing and happening across town. As soon as there's one ray of sunshine and anything above 10 degrees or so, people are flocking to the water, the river, the lake, and actually take a dip. I've done so myself during the winter, even in November, probably not for too long, longer than two minutes. But now summer is fully on and it's actually really enjoyable to have this crystal clear water um, because many people actually have this rule to themselves that they can only live in cities with access to water. And I totally understand that. It changes the nature of a city. It changes your habits of where you meet, where you hang out, where you meet for a, for a picnic. So that's certainly a perk. It is a big perk um, and having been for a walk down into Hyde Park yesterday and seen the amount of uh, what swans were leaving just by the water, I don't think I'll be taking a dip in the Lido anytime soon. Simon <laughs> Brooke, when was the last time you threw yourself into urban water? Um, probably last year, actually. I'm, I'm a great w winter dipper as well, actually. I really enjoy it. I mean, there is that moment, um, you know, uh, I'm sure Benno would agree, where you dive in, you just think, what on earth am I doing? But then the numbness hits in and the sheer craziness of it and then you come out again and you're tingling and, and yeah, most wonderful feeling. And apparently it's also good for your, your body as well. I'll, yeah, you're speechless, everyone. No, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> just refusing to believe anything that you've just said. Um, <laughs> I think I think bodies, some bodies can, some bodies can't. I'm in the latter category, but the pe people who can, I do just say, yeah, okay, fine. Just don't, you're mad enough. Please just don't, don't me make do me do it. Um, what about you, Terry? Are you, are you, I mean, am I seeing you in, in Hampstead women's ponds every done, morning? I have done Hampstead ponds, again, not for a while. Uh, I think coldest was at 14 degrees, and I really regretted it, but... London Fields Lido, clean, heated water, 50-metre pool. I am there every week, like, several times. It is the most lovely place. And weirdly, it has, since it was a, a very old 1930s Lido uh, that had fallen into disuse, was renovated, I think, maybe 10 years ago or so, and it has been one of the things that has completely revived that area in East London. Obviously, it benefited from things like the Olympic Park, which is sort of further down as well. But now it's just a brilliant place to go. So you can go swimming, you can eat lovely food. And it's, I think, a really interesting example of what's happened with a lot of cities is that, uh, particularly during the pandemic, the centre hasn't done so well, the sort of business districts, but the places where people are living and working in a sort of more flexible way have really thrived. Indeed, it's, it's one of those things that we saw the big tower blocks, not the big tower blocks, but the big, the big glass city apartment blocks were not the place where anybody wanted to be during the pandemic. And the Quality of Life survey really does look at, the, at how 
simple local pleasures have actually sustained communities. In Benno, again, every time we hear you, it's I've gone for a dip, I've bought some really nice cheese, I've found <laughs> a new wine in the cup. It's, it's, I mean, frankly, it's, it's rather sickening, to be honest, if you're not in Zurich. But there is that idea that if you, if you make friends with your neighbour, if there is a really nice little bench that you can go and sit on, and if there is a nice shop around the corner, chances are is that you're going to weather the pandemic in a slightly more um, healthy way. Sorry, not sorry for fulfilling all these Swiss cliches about buying delicious <laughs> cheese every so often. Um, but it's really true. Like neighborhoods have been revived. Not that Zurich has this huge anonymous um, business district like the city of London, for example, is just given the size of the city overall. But even around Dufourstrasse 90, where Monocle's shop and cafe and studio is located, even here, it's gotten more lively. I think there's more queues outside the local baker. At least that's what I notice every Sunday morning coming in for the show. And that's really crucial. And in a way, there's been a bridge between the digital world and the real world as well, um, particularly during lockdowns, all these Facebook groups and so on that have mushroomed and where people connected have translated to people actually meeting up and maintaining this sense of community whereas cities, even the size of Zurich, um, can be quite anonymous. One doesn't really talk to each other when one buys this delicious cheese in a neighbourhood shop. Maybe that's changed a little bit. We should really keep that. How about you, Simon? Did you find yourself suddenly falling in love with your local area during lockdown? Or were you always... Yeah, there's a... There's a, there's a, a OK, there's a face <laughs> no, being pulled sorry. here. I don't know where you live, Simon, I so I don't, I don't know. I think I, I... Yeah, I mean, to be honest... Yes, I suppose I did, actually. I mean, to be honest, where I live in, in West London, my immediate high street isn't the most attractive high street <laughs> unless you want fried chicken or to go and put some money in a slot machine. But I think what was really... What really struck me actually about your um, about your survey was, uh, and Copenhagen topping it, I think was particularly interesting. Is is without the tourists was was one of the lines in the survey, and I just think um, so many cities, especially those cities that smaller cities that really are inundated with tourists, that the quality of life for residents has improved so much, hasn't it? The fact that they can get out and do things and just not be, uh, you know, swamped with with uh, people who have just come to sort of take a, a selfie somewhere and, and you know and buy a, a cheap uh, a bit of schlock or whatever. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the other thing that, and I, this is something I have definitely uh, benefited from, again, that comes out of the survey, is the parks. I was amazed reading uh, how many parks so many cities have, like thousands of parks. And you think there is so obviously, and this just spells it out, I suppose, doesn't it, that connection between quality of life and green space. And I'm sure post-pandemic, as we look to build back better, as they say, you know, that is something that's really going to come out. I noticed that as well when I was... I mean, Hyde Park became my back garden during lockdown and still remains so. And... Um, it was just astonishing that when there were no more tourists left in it, it, it became the, the, the weirdest place because there was this enormous expanse of green space. But I knew everybody because they were all my neighbours. Yeah. I mean, we were all having to stand at two metres apart from each other and pretending to do exercise underneath helicopters flying overhead. So it was rather crackers and dystopian. But there was that feeling that suddenly you owned your own space, which is that lovely sense, again, of belonging, isn't it, Terry, which is so important in quality of life. Yes, I, I mean, I've, as Benno says, I've really noticed, you know, where I... I live a, a relatively new a little bake, a bakery and a coffee shop opened up and now that almost has queues to the end to the end of the street particularly on the weekends but also during lockdown when people were working from home that was a lot of people's treat right I'll go out I'll get my coffee my pastry and local independent shops like the fishmongers and the butchers and cheesemongers and stuff really really uh, thrive but as you say Emma about the parks I mean I'm, my nearest park is Shoreditch Park which is a deeply unglamorous sort of former bomb site I mean there literally was a, a housing estate that was hit by a, a V 
to bomb in the Second World War and then they cleared the houses. And it's just a flat you know, square. But it was suddenly became this massive open-air gym and new paths were kind of worn around it because people were there doing yoga, they were there rock climbing on a big rock in the middle, they were playing all sorts of games and doing exercise. And this park suddenly that had been a fairly unloved place was suddenly full of people. And as you say, the you know, dog walkers all say hello and, and you, know, you got to know people a bit better. Did you feel this in, this in Zurich, Benno? The, or, or has Zurich always been really good at, at repurposing itself regularly for outdoor life? I can... I think we can safely say that London doesn't do outside very well until there is one ray of sunshine and then it appears that everybody is instantly drunk. <laughs> and then an hour later it starts raining and people he- head home again. Well, they don't because they're drunk, so they just stand outside and get wet. It's it's a it's a terrible ritual that the Brits do, I'm afraid. I finally see the point of all that strategy. <laughs> Makes you forget the weather, I guess. Um, I guess Zurich has always been about that, being outdoors. I mean, going hiking as well as a popular weekend activity, not just since the pandemic. It's always it's been that, even though it's picked up even more so. So we've always loved our park, but there isn't actually that much greenery. We see green far, we see the mountains far away, um, but parks in the city, the bits of green that we have, were really busy, but not enough. And I think people have really figured this out, that we need more, hence urban planning is also aiming at increasing um, the amount of green even though it's quite tricky because how do you even get a new park? You probably have to tear down buildings that were there before. So loads of issues still to resolve, but kind of there's a, this optimism in the air that a lot of it is possible because we really, really started appreciating our park. And it actually reminds me that pandemics have always changed the face of a city and triggered such changes. Even the plague in London, for example, triggered um, the need to actually build parks to for people to, to breathe or maybe today that will be exercising and so on to stay healthy. So it's about health, um, which should be the, the, the real argument pushing um, people to flock more to parks it, and to build more of them. It does you know, introduce the issue here of, um, of how you get your way out of a pandemic. And you know, the, the quality of life uh, survey was very much a sort of how is it, how are big, uh, where are these grand projects that will shape quality of life for years to come? Um, is there a sense, do you think, Simon, that that, that we can, des- you know, we are, we are now designing our way out of out of the pandemic in in the way that Benno talks about the creation of parks following the Black Death, and you know, even here in the United Kingdom, when there was cholera in the nineteenth century, Bazalgette came up with some sewers and cleaned the city. It was incredible. Yeah, I think the real opportunities there. And Benno, just as you were talking then about, uh, do you have to knock down buildings to create a park? Well, actually. Uh, here in the UK, in the north of England, there are opportunities or questions from local authorities about whether that might be something they do because they're looking at these huge shopping centres that were built in the 70s, 80s, perhaps even in the 90s. And now with online shopping, they're saying, well, hang on, do we need these things anymore? So what do we do with them? Uh, and I know, uh, as I say, certain in certain some towns in the northeast of England, there are questions about whether you knock these things down. And what do you do instead? Well, perhaps you don't build anything there in its place, you you create a park there. So I think the real opportunities. And also, as well, I think opportunities for the big office buildings, which have been thrown up in many of our cities around the world. Um, and uh, questions now about if we're not going into the office or we're only going in two days a week or whatever, what do we do with these huge office buildings and no longer to have workers in them seven, you know, five days a week, nine to five sort of thing? Question is, do we then redevelop those turn those into the houses, the houses, the apartments, the homes 
that we so desperately need, certainly in the UK and other cities around the world, for young people who are struggling to get on the housing ladder. And I think that could be great because, you know, if you've got a sort of a skyscraper and you've got a wadge of offices, floor 10 to 15, and then you've got homes 15 to 30 or something, you know, people can commute down to the lift, down the lift to their office, can't they? And then it brings more people into the cities, uh, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, it begs the question how much how much of a light touch or a heavy touch the authorities should have in all this. The, um, we saw every single country and every single city trying to negotiate its way through um, sort of supporting various parts, which many people perhaps would dismiss or hadn't thought of, but suddenly became really important. I mean, one of the examples that I think of is in Vienna, isn't it, that says that there was there wasn't enough support for artists. And so the federal and city governments extended their handouts to the, the cultural sphere, the, the, the Kulturbereich. And that meant that you had the whole of the art section being um, being supported in a way that... I mean, some people have suggested that here in the United Kingdom... You know, London isn't on the list, let's be honest. Um, and, and there's perhaps a reason for that, Terry, which is because people didn't get just how important not just whether you can commute into town or whether you can get your get your loaf of bread right but actually whether there's a there's a sort of a cultural soul to a city Yes, and I think that's one of the interesting things. And I've got to say, you know, looking through the list of these cities, one of the things that they have in common is they are none of them cheap places to live. I mean, and that is obviously particularly uh, with the arts and cultural sector. That is an issue. And I was talking to friends during the pandemic, so there, there was a real problem for people who wanted to get into, say, acting and things like that. It, it, the pandemic made it slightly better in that you didn't have to be in London to go to your audition. So you could do an audition down the line via Zoom. But a lot of these places are really, really expensive to live. And where you've seen kind of vibrant cultural places, they've often been in places like Berlin when they were cheap to live. And I think Berlin still is an example of a place where it's relatively cheap for you to go and live and, and create art and so forth. But that is the difference. How do you, the difficulty, how do you balance, you know, a, a really lovely livable city with a place that has also got a bit of a, an edge to it? And where does Zurich fit in with that, Benno? How, I mean, I can't, edgy wasn't a word that massively uh, sprang to mind when I was uh, going for a stroll outside the opera house just a few months ago oh, no, we're clearly not edgy we're way too <laughs> controlled and know every, love everything in order and so on i think terry is spot on saying that um the list of cities are not really affordable ones um but I guess there there is room if the state comes in and has been supporting in Zurich as well for, for people working in arts and culture, even though it was very limited, but to maintain that because it makes the city livable. Um, but speaking of Berlin as well, I mean, Berlin's housing prices have increased massively by double digits each year almost. Um, so there's almost talk of, let's say, Leipzig, a nearby city, becoming the new Berlin because it's still affordable. So that's a really, really tricky balance. But yet again, I think urban planning is can really help to provide these spaces. For example, if northeast London, as Simon mentioned, has all these unused, old, um, abandoned shopping malls, let's knock a few of them down and turn them into parks, and let's keep some others and turn them into studios for artists and so on. There's a lot of opportunity, but we need actual political support and some money to that extent. What about the political support, Simon? I mean, we'll be getting onto the papers in a minute and the political fallout from the pandemic in, 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 in a little bit after the news headlines but political support is is really important in actually getting trust isn't it you know 
the big issue that I think a lot of people had with the countries that didn't manage the pandemic was that they didn't trust those people in charge. And there was, there was that, that saying that when the government fails, the mayor, the mayor steps in. Yeah, well, it's interesting here in the UK. I mean, you talk about mayors um, during the last election, local elections here in the UK. We saw the mayors of the West Midlands of Manchester really coming to the fore and uh, standing up for their regions and um, and doing a good job, many people would say, in terms of sort of implementing the policy that, you know, needed to be implemented to make sure that the to, to sort of minimise the impact of the pandemic and the lockdown and things. And so, yeah, I think I think there's a real opportunity for uh, mayors to to be a, a little bit imaginative and brave. You know, obviously, as, as we say, knocking down a shopping centre and just putting a park uh, could be considered very foolish and it's certainly very unusual. But if you've got a, char- a charismatic mayor um, like Andy Burnham, like Andy Street, who have uh, a clear vision, then I think they can take people with them. And I think what's been quite interesting in... Uh, in many of the cities is actually the mayors have been relatively non-political, if you like. They haven't been banging their their party's drums. They've actually been banging their local region's drums. And in the northeast, for instance, we can see mayors again very successful. So I think one of the things that was happening anyway, and perhaps the pandemic has accelerated it, is the growing power of mayors to, you know, to create a better uh, quality of life for the people living in their areas. It, it begs the, the question, actually, I think it was raised by Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, that um, he is a Labour politician, but he said, I do politics of place. I don't do, you know, politics of loyalty. And it, it is that idea that it doesn't matter from which side of the political fe- fence you, you hail from, you deal with what you have in front of you. And if you are a regional mayor, you can address the the issues which are absolutely relevant to your residents. Yeah, I think probably this is an example of something where mayors are much better placed to be in charge of this kind of policy. If you have a big top-down national thing saying, OK, every shopping centre that's built in the 70s is going to be knocked down, people say, well, no, I, I like mine in my local area. You know, It's actually much better to have someone who knows the area and knows you know, how things can change, how the bus routes work or whatever the local issue is. And you, know, you might need central government funds to help some of these things, but actually... Localism here, I think, is is probably the, the right way to go. Benno, what would you say to that? Um, well, yeah, no, I actually fully, fully, fully agree with that. OK, thank you very much indeed. We'll have much more from Terry Stiasny, Simon Brook and Benno Dog in just a moment. But now with the time at 9.30 here in London, 10.30 if you're listening in Zurich, a quick summary of the day's main news headlines. A fifth body has been found after the collapse of an apartment block in Florida. Meanwhile, a report into the safety of the building has highlighted a major error in its original design. A reward of $800,000 has been offered following an attack on the Colombian president's helicopter and two more Catholic ter- churches in indigenous communities in Western Canada have burned down. The authorities are treating the fires as suspicious. Those are the headlines on Monocle 24. Right, let's continue with a look at the newspapers. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, going through the papers now. Uh, Terry Stiasny, Simon, Simon Brook and Benno Zog holding the fort in, uh, in, in Dufourstrasse 90, Benno, with your, with your coffee and your wonderful papers spread out in front of you. Um, let's have a look at the main story. Any, anyone got any guess what's making the front pages of, the, of all, the Anglo, all, the, all the English language papers this morning? Hands up anyone who wants to know more about Matt Hancock's private life. <laughs> 
Terry, do you right. want to start on well, this one? Well, let's start. Yeah, so let's start with the front of uh, front page of the Sunday Times, which uh, the front page headline is "Humiliated Hancock Quits Minister Ended 15-Year Marriage Just Hours Before Affair Exposed." Now, sort of on the surface of it, this story um, and uh, the the Sunday Times gives you absolute every detail that you possibly didn't want to know um, about all of this, calling Matt Hancock the ex-minister for hypocrisy, uh, an illicit relationship with a glamorous aide has wrecked his marriage and his career. The reason this matters is, of course, although it's very sad for uh, Matt Hancock's family and his children and the children and family of uh, the woman he's in a relationship with, it's actually about how the government has been managing um, the pandemic and the way that things have been operating in Whitehall. So not only did Matt Hancock appear to... He, he's obviously pictured in The Sun earlier this week in a in a clinch caught on CTV in his office with his advisor. This, you know, was at a time when people were not supposed to hug even their nearest and dearest members of their family. Um, people across the country were forced to be separated from people that they would quite normally, legitimately want to hug. And, you know, in many cases, people weren't able to see people who were ill in hospital. There is also a question about how Matt Hancock came to appoint um, Gina Colodangelo, who's a, an old friend of his, both to the board of the Department of Health and as an advisor. So there were some really uh, serious questions here for the government. And in particular, I think one of the most damaging things for the government was this sense that you know, the, the perception that the government doesn't think that the rules apply to them. You remember the case of Dominic Cummings last year when he went off on a trip to Barnard Castle and then subsequently tried to justify the, the reasons that he'd done that. But, you know, Matt Hancock was the person standing up in Downing Street telling us, or in Parliament, telling us what the rules were, telling us that we had to obey them. And to be seen as the person who then quite, you know, broke those rules, that made his position really untenable. Simon. You used to work for Conservative <laughs> Headquarters Communications. Are you glad you're sitting behind this microphone this morning? I most certainly am, Emma. I have to say, this was the kind of call I used to get on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock at night from the Sunday Times or one of the Sunday papers, that the, uh, the News of the World, as it then was, saying, and I would be going, he's done what? With who? <laughs> Where? So, yeah, I'm really... I, I, there is a throwback to the old Tory sort of sleaze, which is amazing. I think what's really interesting, though, is, as as you say, uh, Terry, it really is about... It's about hypocrisy, isn't it? I think the polls show and listening to, you know, talking to... Listening to sort of uh, friends and, and, and others talking about it, I think we think, well... People do this. People have affairs. It's shocking. It's horrible. Uh, his wife didn't know, apparently, until he had to tell her that I'm leaving you, which is awful. Um, and, you know, and, and the who knew what, when stuff about who appointed whom and whether it went through official channels. This is important, of course. But do the public care about it? Nah, not really. They don't really care. They used but, to a while ago, though. The the, the, the temperature's changed, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think I think it is. A, it, I, I hate to use the Westminster Village cliche, but I think it is to some extent. But what really makes this so toxic is the hypocrisy thing, isn't it? And I always say, if you look at the newspaper headlines, if you look at what's uh, uh, you know trending on social media or whatever you'll find that the thing that gets people angry is unfairness. You know, our mums and dads used to say to us, no, life isn't fair, but we still want it to be fair, don't we? So when somebody does something that isn't fair, when we get this hypocrisy, there's a sort of visceral anger here. And I think this is why, uh, really, Matt Hancock had to go. And you just you just question, 
his judgment. What on earth was he thinking about? But um, yeah, I think you know that it's the hypocrisy that really uh, meant that he had to leave. Benno in Zurich. I mean, it's made it to the pages of the Tages Anzeiger. I know that. I mean, is what is, is anybody really bothered about this in, in outside the United Kingdom, or is there just a sense that everybody thinks, well, the British are a little bit mucky? <laughs> I think there's an element of that, and but it has made headlines across the papers in the German-speaking press. Um, it combines sex and politics, which always works as well as a headline as such. But I also think it is quite quite fitting, and this hypocrisy argument that Simon and Terry mentioned, I think, is really key to it, because whatever country is now reporting on this kind of issue has similar issues with some of their own politicians or leaders and so on. And usually there's no consequences to it because there, it may have just been a small mistake. They apologize and then the affair is buried. But not in that case where actually someone stepped down and in so many countries people are keen to see leaders actually assume some kind of responsibility for what they did. And it was so outrageous uh, in the case of, of Matt Hancock um, that it has actually led to this stepping down. Plus, I think what makes the story quite appealing to our press is that it's part of this whole mess that is post-Brexit UK politics with the hypocrisy that comes with it, with the chaos, with these people who fail to, to manage and stand up and, and actually be coherent in their policies. So it resonates really well. Has that, Benno, actually created... A, a stronger, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a stronger public image of the United Kingdom, which is about as far as, uh, as about as far from global Britain as one could imagine. <laughs> I think it's reinforced exactly that very perception. Yes, that's a, that is a real that's a real shame, isn't it, Terry? Because it is, you know, it's, it's what it's less than ten years since the world was really enjoying the Olympics and the the, the United Kingdom was flying high. Brand Britain was absolutely wonderful. I mean, in a, mo in a moment we're going to go to Tokyo to find out how they're faring. Slightly more problematically with it, with the, uh, with the, with the, with the United Kingdom, and I know we're going to do a story in a little bit about um, how the the Ministry of Defence's security um, systems aren't quite as good with the the leaving of very very important classified documentation at a bus stop. And it it, it is is there this sort of cumulative problem that we now face? Well, I, th I think it is very difficult. I mean, if you think one of the things that's going on at the moment, Britain is trying to you know discuss with the rest of Europe what what the rules should be, say on us traveling to other countries and i think there is this perception that you know britain obviously although the vaccination system is now doing really well and really fast britain did not handle the pandemic particularly well in terms of certainly uh, the numbers of people who've died or the numbers of people who have been ill people are extremely worried about the spread of, of new variants uh, within the uk and then having stories like this and i'm just flicking through you know le monde le figaro all covering uh, hancock's resignation it doesn't give you the greatest impression of you know how 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 britain is is running things i mean and let's not forget of course there's a whole political uk to political background to this where you've had the prime minister's former advisor dominic cummings arguing that matt hancock should already have been fired 15 to 20 times you know before this and him sharing sort of supposed uh, texts from the prime minister boris johnson that uh, matt hancock was was effing useless so that you know it just is this impression of a sort of a general shambles in in london is is not particularly good for the uk and we have a fresh line about matt hancock uh, today the, the the british health health secretary for for those of you if you've 
you've missed this uh, marvellous story, uh, resigned yesterday um, after it was discovered that he'd been not only having an affair with a, a woman on his team uh, who he had hired and was paying public money to without it uh, being publicly known. Um, and, uh, oh, it was all awful. Um, <laughs> Simon, one of the things that's come out today is that he's actually been running, or he was running the... Um, uh, the government's procurement and goodness knows what government business off a private email, which is now really difficult to get hold of because if there is a request for information, if you know when the the COVID inquiry is is begun, there will be a real problem for those trying to get information out of him, won't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when you think of private emails, I was, I was thinking, who else has gotten into trouble with private emails? And of course, Hillary Clinton uh, did that in the US, as we saw, and that be that became very controversial and very, very difficult for her. So um, I think I think it comes back to a point you made earlier, but this, this idea of trust and Last uh, Sunday, um, Matthew Said in the Sunday Times had an interesting piece just looking at how countries really get into trouble when people don't trust their governments. Um, and I think that the idea of this, this private uh, email account and questions about what went in there and how much access investigators, civil servants, the media, other people will have to that those private emails, what they said, uh, is, is really important because we do need to know this. I think it's interesting that just to look at the broader political thing that uh, that Boris Johnson has appointed Sajid Javid uh, to be the new health secretary, the former chancellor. And I would say that's one in the eye to Dominic Cummings, obviously, who was uh, never a great fan of his. He says, Dominic Cummings says that uh, Carrie Simmons or Carrie Johnson, I suppose she now is, the, the prime minister's wife, was responsible for, for Savid Javid's appointment. Um, but I think he's probably seen as a safe pair of hands. Um, he, the Conservative Home, the, uh, the, which is the sort of the, the almost the, the, uh, the in-house magazine of the Conservative membership, Conservative Party membership, is suggesting that it's a way that Boris Johnson can have of um, keeping Rishi Sunak in his box, if you like. I'm going to appoint a former Chancellor to this important role, so you're not the only person who, you know, former Chancellor or Chancellor who might uh, have eyes on my job or whatever. But um, I think it's interesting, as I say, Sajid Javid, I think will be a, probably a safer pair of hands here and therefore will be less embarrassing to, to Boris Johnson and to the country at large, really. Isn't, isn't it great? Gosh, I'm going to be less embarrassing. Yes, that's, that's, your, uh, that's your election mon mon motto, isn't <laughs> not it? Not quite as bad as you think we are. Um, Benno, I mean, you, you deal in security studies an awful lot uh, and, and you deal on the macro issue of, of, of security, international protection. But when you have senior ministers dealing with Gmail, how does that change things? <laughs> It is quite unfortunate indeed. <laughs> the reshuffling of, of this personnel sounds like a boys club more so than an actual government or, or a cabinet. And actually this all sounds like it may warrant a criminal investigation because apparently so much has been going wrong. But the Gmail factor actually reminds me that um, when I'm at some conferences in, in Eastern Europe, I've received business cards even from ministers um, or f ministers of foreign affairs who had an iCloud email address. So apparently it's common in some places, but one would expect better in London. Thank you very much indeed, Benno. You're with uh, Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, Benno Zog, Terry Stiasny and Simon Brooke. We'll be heading to Japan in a moment. Monocle's July-August issue marks the return of our Quality of Life special edition that is guaranteed to get you in the mood for sun and for summer. Dive in for a look at everything from the year's urban winners to the tourist hotspots eagerly awaiting the return of travel. 
We settle on the sparkling shores of Thassos for an in-depth look at the Greek island's businesses and people preparing for the return of tourists that form the backbone of their summer economy. Hop in while the water's warm and order your copy of Monocle's July-August issue today or subscribe to get instant access to our digital editions. Head to monocle.com for more. And you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. We're off to Tokyo now to hear from our bureau chief in the city, Fiona Wilson. Good afternoon, Fiona. How is Tokyo today? Well, it's a little bit grey, but it's rather steamy. We're in the middle of the rainy season here, and um, it is a slightly trying time of year, I have to say. It's uh, It tends to be a little on the grey side, but still, uh, we're still in a, a what, what they call a quasi-emergency here. So <laughs> you have to follow the detail. But it's sort of, everyone's a bit confused about the rules now. Basically, it's not quite as strict as a state of emergency. It's a sort of semi-emergency, which means restaurants closing at eight, but they can serve alcohol till seven. So it's it's rather a, a detail that everyone has to know. So we have sort of a state of semi-panic as well, I would, I would imagine, from the citizens. I don't know about you, but in, in some of the cities that I've heard about... Um, some citizens are very, very good at easing gently out of lockdown. If you look at London, we either do full lockdown followed by nigh on orgy in the streets. No one can do it in between. Are, are Tokyo, Tokyo citizens managing to, to cope with this, this recalibration? Of course. I mean, you can imagine here, you know, that people generally are doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, Tokyo's not had these kind of really rigid lockdowns. I was hearing so much about in London. It sounded really tough. It's been a lot, a series of sort of low level lockdowns, which it's been a kind of grinding, rather relentless process. I think it's there's a serious fatigue, but people are still doing what they're supposed to do, you know, masks everywhere. Um, but you know, we, we haven't seen any kind of uh, parties in the streets yet. But uh, I think, you know, people are fed up with the situation. And, you know, everyone's aware that because of the Olympics, numbers have to, infection numbers have to be kept down so that they, you know, they know why we're, we're being kept in this sort of semi-emergency state. Right. So let's talk about the Olympics. We've got less than a month to go. Where where are we with them? Because it's it's it's, <laughs> it's hard to follow unless you're absolutely spending 23, 23 hours a day following each development. Yeah, it's lucky that I am really, isn't it? I mean, I, I, it's just been such a saga. You just, it's, it's just been extraordinary. And every day brings new news. I mean, earlier in the week, they announced that alcohol would be served at venues. Huge public uh, uproar. The next day, they said there'll be no alcohol. So it's been like that pretty much every day. Something is announced, then something is sort of unannounced. So with spectators, they've announced finally, finally, this issue of spectators, which has been going on and on. They've decided that there will be spectators. It's up to 50% capacity of any venue and then and no more than 10,000 people. So there will be domestic spectators, no um, overseas spectators. So now they have the problem that they have ticketed, they've given out tickets to more people in Japan than there are seats. So there's going to have to be another lottery. So all the people so thrilled to get their tickets in the first lottery. I wasn't one of them. I didn't get any tickets. They might find they lose them in this next lottery. Um, so that that's a bit disappointing. But at the moment, it is going ahead, apparently. Uh, you know, not, they're always saying it'll be safe and secure. We'll see how numbers go. Um, but it, it is going ahead. Teams have started arriving. Uh, very, very low key, though. I think they don't want to frighten the public. So not that much sign of the Olympics, strangely, in the streets. It's it's pretty low-key at the moment. How astonishing. Um, everything low-key, apart from the Japanese empress wading in. 
Well, I mean, that was just such an unexpected intervention. Everyone was absolutely shocked. Um, you know, the emperor really very rarely says anything remotely controversial. It, it's it's just not their role to do that. So very surprised on Thursday when the the grand steward of the uh, steward of the imperial household agency, who's the most senior official. Uh, in that setup, reported that the emperor wasn't happy with the COVID situation in Japan and was concerned that the Olympics were going to contribute to an increase in infections. I mean, I can imagine at Tokyo 2020, Jaws must have been on the floor. That's very, very unusual, huge reverberations. And there's no way that that, you know, Mr. Nishimura, who is the Grand Steward, he wouldn't have said that without authorization from the emperor, unthinkable. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a very, very short, very late intervention. A lot of people who've been saying, can we cancel the Olympics? And, you know, we've talked about this so much over the last few months. That a lot of them said, well, it's a bit late at this point, you know, a month to go, it's not going to be cancelled. So it was a rather intriguing uh explosive intervention, but I don't think it will make any difference at this point. One thing that might make a difference to the spread of COVID is, an, is the amount of vaccinations that actually get done by the by the time the, the Olympics open. I mean, are we looking at a, a speeding up of affairs, given the fact that, that Japan has, uh, it, it's been widely reported, been really slow on this? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it, haven't we? I mean, it, it, it was extraordinarily late, given that the Olympics were happening here, in theory, you know, you thought really they'd get on top of it. It was very, very late. But now that it's underway, I mean, it's extraordinary. A million vaccinations a day now. So the pace has just, it's its just transformed uh, so much so that they've had to hold back a bit because, you know, demand is outstripping supply. Everyone's being vaccinated. Companies are getting in on it. So you've got companies like Uniqlo, Mori Building, they're vaccinating their employees. Universities are turning into sort of vaccination stations. So it's, it's completely different even to what it was just a few weeks ago. So um, I, I'm half vaccinated at this point. So, um, yeah, I, it's incredibly efficient now. It won't, I mean, everyone will not be vaccinated in time for the Olympics, unfortunately, but they're looking at October, November for vaccination to be sort of completed by those who want. Now, the, the question is, can they persuade younger people to be vaccinated? And that's not absolutely clear at the moment. I won't ask which half has been vaccinated. Uh, Fiona Wilson in Tokyo, thank you so much for joining us. Let's go straight back to the panel here in London, because it's about time we had a look at some of the other stories that have been uh, making the headlines. I think something that's been... Um, that's been breaking in the last couple of hours here in the UK, but I think everybody has a, has a, will have a reasonably strong opinion on, is this astonishing story. Classified Ministry of Defence documents found at a bus stop. It appears that the set of documents discuss the likely Russian reaction to, the, to a, uh, a, a ship, the HMS Defender, and the British military's presence um, through Ukrainian waters off the Crimea coast on Wednesday. Uh, Terry, I'm going to begin with you, because you've written two books, haven't you? Both novels, <laughs> first of which... Did, deals with the transgressions of a, of a, of a minister, is that correct? Uh, well, one of them is about uh, somebody who precisely got in trouble for uh, for losing some top-secret government documents. Uh, that was the first one. And my the second one um, was about cronyism among, you know, people who the kind of old college friends who go on holiday together and resultant political consequences of that. So I'm feeling quite a, you know, slightly, slightly <laughs> prescient ball, this yeah. morning. Yeah, the, the second book is actually called Conflicts of Interest, which is like sort of... <laughs> seen everywhere all over the papers. You send a copy to Matt Hancock. Sorry. <laughs> he may not appreciate that, but yeah. <laughs> Bit late now. Um, yes, let's talk about this, this Ministry of Defence thing. So basically, incredibly secret documents, pictures of top secrets splashed all over the papers this morning. Uh, someone left it at a bus stop in Kent. 
Yes, I just love the, the sort of detail in this uh, BBC story of this. Documents almost 50 pages in all were found in a soggy heap behind a bus stop in Kent early on Tuesday morning. They were found apparently by a member of the public who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, and it includes, the documents include emails and PowerPoint presentations for, originating from the office from a senior official at the Ministry of Defence. So, you know, maybe this is an argument. We were talking earlier about, you know, how, how things should be recorded officially. Maybe you shouldn't be printing out your emails and your PowerPoint presentations. And maybe if, you know, if he'd lost his phone and it would all been on WhatsApp or Gmail, we, we would not be in a soggy heap in a, in a Kent bus stop. But it, seriously, it was about, you know, this was about how, uh, about the controversy about HMS Defender going through uh, Ukrainian waters and the sort of contretemps with Russia uh, and officials asking about, you know, how they thought that this might be handled. And, and, you know, we have pictures here of this sort of rather damp pile of documents. So I just love to know, you know, how this got here and I feel feeling rather sorry for whoever you know dropped their folder behind the bus stop as they were running for the bus I don't know how did this happen Ben Ozog in Zurich with your monocle security correspondent hat on how could you leave a a ton of classified documents to to get a bit soggy at a bus stop (laughs) one really wonders about the circumstances (laughs) maybe somebody was heading from the office to remote work from home um, and was in quite quite a rush apparently Interestingly, I find that there's almost a bit of a weird beauty to it, that this human error, this actually information on paper, is apparently still a factor. Who would have thought? Because we're all used to cybercrime and hacking and so on when people are sent suspicious emails and may click on the wrong hyperlink and then may get hacked. But this is way more, well, tangible, if you will. Um but at least a responsible member of the public picked up the paper because it may well have been someone else. So I, see, I think we will see maybe another resignation at some point. That, uh, that responsible weeks. member of the public then somehow allowing for whatever had been seen and making it to the press. Benno, what else have you picked up on in the, pa- in the paper today? You just mentioned hacking. Yes, hacking indeed. There was actually a, a story in Sonntagszeitung on cybercrime and a new division of labor among cyber criminals. One actually grabs your private information and another criminal entrepreneur or whatever they call themselves um, may actually then try to follow up and, and grab secret data. And obviously the line between cyber crime, so for monetary purposes, um, and actually espionage by governments is blurred and Russia being a notorious actor in all of that is is uh, one to watch out for. So, But I guess no, no cyber criminals if there's actually paper involved. So there's this allegation that some secret services still may rely on typewriters occasionally to actually prevent all this digital um, cyber hacking and and crime to to actually occur. So one wonders how these worlds are merged. There is that strange beauty, isn't there, Simon? I mean, Monocle, here we are great champions of of the use of paper. Um, Whoops. (laughs) Yes, well, just just be careful where you leave it. uh, But it it does seem extraordinary, doesn't it, that who would be printing these things out and my mind is already racing. Perhaps this is another a novel idea or something. Like, was somebody printing it out so that they could give it to somebody who a foreign power or something? Because is that a safer way of doing it rather than sort of forwarding in an email or or transferring it electronically? Do you know what I mean? You print it out. There's no record that it's been printed out. There's no record that you're giving it to somebody. So I don't know. But it does show how... We're really never completely safe, are we? And you just have to be incredibly careful with We're not actually safe from ourselves either. This is what I find rather wonderful about the Matt Hancock story and the the bus stop story, is that at the end of the day, human error is 
is just unbelievably wonderful in its unpredictability, isn't it, Terry? Yeah, I mean, yes, it's, it is, you know, obviously there is a serious point to this because some of the information which, you know, BBC saying here, they haven't reported some of the things that could actually put people's security, so British personnel in Afghanistan, for instance, at risk. But yes, it just seems people are you know, sort of hardwired to share things. So, so, you know, we've seen so much government business now being conducted by WhatsApp. And even though that's supposed to be secure, it's not secure from someone, you know, a disgruntled former aide getting a screenshot of it and, and putting that up on a block. You know, all of these things, although they might not be written down, printed out official memos, and they won't be there for, you know, archivists to study in the future, let alone government inquiries, these things have a way of coming out. And, you know, if you say something indiscreet on a, on a WhatsApp or whatever, it, someone, someone will find out about it. Benno, as a security expert, how hardwired are we to just telling things and, and spilling the beans? <laughs> oh, well, I'm not too, too, too optimistic about, uh, about all of that because as we see human error even on paper, then there's been these stories about um, people figuring out the Zoom link, including password or maybe there wasn't even one two secret government meetings and so on um, so I'm not too optimistic that actually our our officials are even mastering the digital world and apparently they don't even master the paper world but I like this small theory of Simon's that maybe this paper was printed for a purpose to not leave a trail and actually hand the information to someone else maybe it wasn't meant for all public eye to see and the BBC and so on but for some specific person only but uh, this human human error, human factor, there's a small beauty in it, but also it reminds us that this is so crucial and I would hope that our national security officials are a bit more vigilant uh, usually. Uh, so do we, but... Uh Sorry. Uh, right, final story, I think. I mean, I've been having a look through the papers and the one thing that absolutely threw me is the fact that we now have to have posh picnics because this is this is the thing. No-one's going anywhere this year. Um, and there was a posh-up-your-picnic. And one of the things that we were talking about was f throw a blanket. Um, it says a blanket is... Well, guess what a blanket is, Simon? It sounds like... Yeah, it sounds like the equivalent of glamping, yes. is it, or something? <laughs> yes, but, yeah, I have it to is. Say... It's, a banquet, it's a banquet on a blanket. Just don't bother. Just don't do it. Surely the whole point about a picnic is that you go to a supermarket, you grab some crisps, some drinks, some, you know, some some sandwiches or whatever, you sausage rolls, whatever disgusting British uh, self-indulgence we might have, and, and then you have a picnic. If you really want to have a banquet or, or stay in a five-star hotel in the form of a caravan, then go and stay in a five-star hotel or go to a Le Gavroche, a Michelin-starred restaurant. Don't try and do it on a beach or a park, I would say. Just embrace the, the, the messiness and the informality of a picnic. So not pillows and cushions in abundance, uh, Liberty Print hamper, um, ha hampers and uh, a wedding dress like uh, gingham to, uh, to make things absolutely beautiful. Uh, so Simon, I think, has just displayed the fact that if we're going for a picnic with Simon this afternoon, it's going to be crisps and sausage rolls and a pat <laughs> of... Great. <laughs> okay, so so the bar is low. Where are you taking us for your picnic? Well, I, it just sounds far too much like hard work for me. I, mean, <laughs> I like the idea of having you know nice food, nice drink, but I've discovered I haven't used it yet because it seems quite expensive. But there's a, a deli near me which has come up with a system um, using the what three words app. 
So you, you which is uh, sort of they there's about three meters square. The earth is divided up into three meters square. So when you're sitting in Hyde Park or Victoria Park or whatever, you can uh, tell them exactly where you would like your picnic delivered to by a three meter square. They will send you a posh picnic with all sorts of delicious delicacies, and supposedly it will arrive to your bit of the park, uh, saving you all the trouble of of collecting your your oh, gingham I, I and your blankets. Yeah. So, okay. you know, <laughs> yeah, I do that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Simon. I'm going with Terry so far. So it's lovely. So have you. Yeah, I think we're all going with Terry. I'm crashing your picnic. Benno, where are you taking us for a, for a fantasy picnic? Well, in all honesty, I ha- I am guilty of having ordered pizza to a park <gasps> with a very accurate description of underneath that big shady tree, you will find the group of four people. Please deliver um, your pizza prosciutto there. Um, on the other point, please don't mix glamorous and picnic. That just shouldn't go together. Absolutely. I like the, the, the sausage rolls approach. Benno, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. Thanks to Benno Zog in Switzerland, holding the fort for Monocle on Sunday uh, from Dufourstrasse 90. And my thanks also to my studio guests, Simon Brook and Terry Stiasny, joining me here in London. Tyler Brule, our editorial director on the line from Gestad, and Fiona Wilson, our Tokyo bureau chief as well. Thanks too to our producer, Rhys James, our studio manager in Zurich was Desiree Bantley, and Nora Hall was looking after the sound here in London. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But for now, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye and thanks for listening.